Welcome to Founders Campfire. I'm Tran, the host of this podcast and a senior at Stanford. Over my four years here, I've built many ventures, from a nonprofit to a social app. Most of these ventures have failed, but by reflecting on and sharing these failures, I've been able to grow and build deep connections. My hope with Founders Campfire is to bring together a community of current and future founders to reflect, share, and grow. Today on Founders Campfire, we have Jason Chow. I met Jason through a mutual friend this past summer. We bonded over our aspirations to build a company. I pitched my ideas to Jason, and soon we were co-founders. On this episode, I'm interviewing Jason on his journey. In the next episode, we'll talk about our experience building a company together and why it didn't work out. Jason, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I'm currently a senior at Stanford uh, and also in a coach room for computer and network security, um, but also currently taking the quarter off to work on something new with a friend. But previously, last fall quarter, uh, 2023, Chad and I, as she mentioned, started uh, working on an idea and applied to, to YC with it. Um, I guess my interest in entrepreneurship first started sort of in high school. A high school friend, Matthew Katz, now founder of Caldera, introduced me to cryptocurrency, uh, particularly a crypto called at that time AntShares, uh, which later rebranded to NEO. No affiliation with the with the NEO VC firm, but yeah, it was it was really taken off. I um, saw a lot of ICO activity at the time, admittedly, a lot of it you know pretty pretty fraudulent, uh, but uh, kind of I don't know somehow got it into my mind like why not give it a shot, and then ultimately launched a ICO, raised around a million dollars, uh, and decided to try to turn that into a um, wireless mesh networking company. So we were trying to make uh, little sensors that use Bluetooth um, in a sort of mesh network fashion. So like, even if two nodes uh, are not in range of each other, one can uh, send it to like a relay node in the middle, and that'll relay it or, or propagate that signal throughout the network. Um, the idea being that this would be pretty useful in areas with like relatively low connectivity. So for example, like a farmer's field, um, and then if you connected these up to soil moisture and other nutrient sensors, you could have like a live picture of what's happening uh, on, on your like agricultural field. Um, worked on that sort of part-time from high school, like grade 10. Um, I, I'm from Vancouver, Canada. So we say like, I don't know, grade 10, 11, 12, rather than like junior, senior. But yeah, I worked on that like part-time kind of from grade 10 when I started through grade 12. I started my grade 12 or senior year. Um, I decided to drop out and kind of commit to it full-time. It felt like we'd kind of been in development for a year, year and a half. And now was the time when we were trying to get go to market and sort of really make or break the, the, the company. Um, and so it just felt like it was like then or, or never. I did that for... Uh, you know, the next year, but then ultimately, uh, you know, things didn't really work out. Uh, and with an ICO, like you can't really raise a follow-on round, even if you've demonstrated some uh, progress, I'd say one of the downsides of any of that fundraising model. Uh, and then um, ultimately decided to come back to high school, finish high school, um, and then apply to Stanford. Another reason why I, I did that though, I mean, one of the other many reasons why the first venture failed, was that I was a non-technical founder at the time, so I knew that I would want to come to like a technical school like Stanford, get a technical degree, all with the, all with an eye towards uh, eventually starting a company someday in the future again. Awesome. Seems like you got the dropout memo even before Stanford. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you help the listeners understand what an ICO is and why it did not work in terms of 
fundraising more money? Yeah, for sure. Um, so for people unfamiliar with crypto, I will describe an ICO uh, perhaps generously as a cross between crowdfunding and an IPO uh, in that uh, it's, it's like crowdfunding in that it's kind of happening at the beginning before you have a product and you're kind of really doing it in order to raise the funds in order to build your product. Um, and it's kind of like an IPO in that you're somewhat selling some kind of stake uh, in your in your project or your company. Um, I think ICOs are also like a pretty pretty data concept for now. There were, <laughs> I mean, sort of like given what I've described, they sound like unregistered securities and in many cases were unregistered securities. I think, you know, in my case, uh, I'm thankful not to have been pursued by the <laughs> SEC for for that. I think in part because perhaps, you know, it, it, we were kind of just a smaller case. But also, I'd like to think, you know, we were pretty responsible for it. I didn't go out and buy a Lambo or something with, with the money. Like, it was actually put into trying to build this company, even though it didn't actually work out. So you come to Stanford, you build your technical skills, and you built many things over your past few years here, including this past summer, you spent it building an AI-powered real estate transaction management platform. Can you tell us about this and how it got started? Yeah, um, it started around March of my junior year. I think I was just really looking ahead to my graduation uh, that's uh, upcoming and realized that, again, I really wanted to get back into entrepreneurship, uh, but I kind of wanted to do a bit of a, a trial run, per se, just you know, get, get my feet wet again um, before diving into something full-time. I mean, I was thinking, ideally, if I can get you know, a project rolling in junior summer, then in senior summer, I could like not just drop out and start a startup all, all new, but kind of continue what I was doing the prior summer, if that was working out. A little bit I idealistic, but yeah, that was the plan. Um, pivoted around a couple ideas, but at some point just got really interested in, I mean, this is pretty distinct from transaction management on, on, on the face of it, but it will circle over there. Um, I got really interested in, in telecom, so in particular, this kind of field called like digital infrastructure, which in particular refers to the physical assets that underlie telecom, uh, these being like cell towers, the data centers, um, you know, fiber optic cables, uh, and was really looking at this industry pretty heavily. Wrote a blog on it on my Substack if anyone's interested in a, in a deep dive. But essentially, like the interesting part is that I think most people imagine that cell towers are owned by the cell carriers themselves, like AT&T and Verizon, but actually they're owned by a whole different set of uh, third-party companies, the largest of which is American Tower, followed by Crown Castle, followed by uh, SBA. Um, and uh, these companies are really kind of just real estate companies at the end of it, because rather than leasing out square footage as you would with a house or an office uh, or even like energy plus rack space like you would in a data center. They're just leasing out sort of like a vertical, say, two-meter section of every tower that they own to the, to, to the carriers in order to hang their equipment off of. So I uh, just found this like really interesting um, and wanted to do something. I think like my overall like overarching career goal I've always said is, you know, to hopefully one day I want to do something that makes the internet faster, um, cheaper, or, or more uh, reliable. And But I also realized at the same time that this industry is dominated by these four huge players. Uh, their customers, the, the carriers themselves, are also basically um, an oligopoly, and that like it would be very hard to build something with these slow-moving enterprises within um, you know, the, the time span of a summer, say like three months. So decided uh, to 
kind of pivoted to something that I thought was kind of adjacent. We're just looking at the space again, is very comparable to real estate. So then thought like, okay, maybe a, a sort of a more attractable uh, problem for a summer might be something within residential real estate. And my mom was also a former real estate agent. So I thought, you know, maybe that would also help as well. So let's first go back to when you were interested in cell towers. How did you come to realize all of these things about cell towers and the business behind it? Yeah, that was through a lot of very, uh, you know, generous people and being willing to, to hop on a, on a call mainly. Um, there, there is also one other thing. Uh, there's a service called Tegas. Uh, it's sort of like a, the modern day competitor to um, GLG, Gerson Lehman Group. But what these two services basically do is they connect you, mainly targeting the hedge fund audience uh, with a professional field, like let's say like a VP of whatever. At a, at a large firm that you're looking to, to invest in. And Tegas is a startup that has come into this space and they're like, okay, we'll connect you at cost, uh, but then we'll also like transcribe and record the, uh, the conversation and we'll make that available on our platform to everyone. So anyways, uh, I'm saying this to say that like they offer this for like 20,000 a month, um, but my friend and I just kind of signed up for a intro call, said that we were starting an AP search fund, um, and then they gave us like a two-week trial. Um, so my very first foreign into the space was using that free trial to um, look at a couple conversations with like the executives at these firms. Um, but after that, it was just a lot of cold emailing. And I think people were very receptive. I think I found that, um, I don't know, I, I think it's just, it's, it's a very niche industry. Um, and so I think people are just kind of surprised when like, an undergraduate has, has shown such, such a deep interest. Yeah. And I think one big takeaway here from Jason's response is that, yes, you can do a lot of research online, but ultimately you have to talk to people because that's like where your source of truth will come from. And yeah, you just have to go out there, email people and find hacks like Jason did <laughs> in order to talk to the VPs. Awesome. So then you narrow down on real estate specifically. Um, can you talk a bit more about that and then how it led to you building what you ultimately did over the summer? Yeah. Um, so that was also just a lot of cold emailing in terms of like need finding. I eventually got in touch with a firm, uh, Sir Hunt. Uh, you might have seen that the founder of Sir Hunt, Ryan Sir Hunt, is on a TV show called like Million Dollar Listings. But spoke with their CTO and then he seemed, you know, I, I, I built up this a very rough demo. Uh, it was honestly like mostly like a fake demo that I kind of stitched together in like iMovie. Uh, hadn't fully built it out, you know, like you know, be lean and and, and yeah. move quickly. But it was essentially like if you have two um, word documents, a way to like kind of sync changes between them. The idea that like if you, if you had like a, a legal contract, you might have like a clause in each of them. Like let's say you're like NDA clause, um, and you have this NDA clause in like 50 of, of, of like or like all of your documents. Then if you want to change. And in one document, it'd be ideal if you could just like do that in one, and then it applies to all of them. So, yeah, made a quick demo for that. Showed it to the CTO of Sirhant. He said like, you know, this is cool. It's not something that we'd really use, uh, but we think that like you're really smart, and we had these other problems. Um, and so, I ended up hopping on like a couple of more calls with them. Um, with their, uh, he was very generous with his time and, and, and with his team. Um, spoke like with their whole like accounting team. And then they told me about this issue uh, in, with, with their transaction management software. Um, I looked more into the industry. So transaction management for context is essentially like the agents, the real estate agent's job um, that works at a real estate brokerage is to 
you know, just kind of be the face uh, of the deal, uh, be that like you know, human, warm, emotional guy. Um, and then uh, when it comes to actually processing the uh, paperwork, um, there there's a team, there's transaction coordinator. Um, that's that's her job title at the brokerage, um, who like kind of actually make sure that the deal logistically moves along, like. You know, this paper is signed by this date. We're file filing this with like the city by, by this date. Um, you know, the the property inspection is being done by this date, and so we just thought that like a lot of this process, you know, is just paperwork. Um, could have could be automated with uh, you know better AI powered software. So that's what I started working on. Yeah, I love that you started talking to people so early. I used to think that like you have to have a full app and then show it to people, but. Yeah, the fact that you stitched together a demo and then started talking to people and then realized like it was not what they wanted probably saved you so many months of building an app that people would have not want to use. Yeah, for sure. And so I guess that kind of takes us to like the end. So how did it go? I had most of the platform built out by late summer, so like mid-August. Um, ultimately, just realized that like staying in the space was you know, not something that I'd, I'd want to do like long term, and also I like, didn't really feel comfortable um, like selling this software to like Sir Hunt. Um, you know, I I talked to some other like firms in the space, and um, they they didn't like this is something that I should have done er- earlier, but they didn't exactly like have the same sort of problems that uh, Sir Hunt had had in, in this space. So it, it it kind of turned out to to kind of be more like a little bit of a consulting project. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't really feel comfortable like selling this solution that I knew I'd be kind of be, be ditching in a couple months to Sir Hunt. So uh, I kind of just shut the project down. But yeah, I, I think my kind of takeaway from it is I think that you kind of really, really want to chart out your values before you start uh, working on on something long term. I think I, I've had conversations like with, with my friends, um, kind of just stack ranking money, fame, like social impact, organizational impact, autonomy, personal interest, intellectual stimulation, whatever, on like a hierarchy. And like I'd always thought that like, you know, for example, like intellectual stimulation was like relatively like like low on the list. And I thought that as long as like I felt like I was making like, you know, an, an economic impact or or that I was making money, that I'd be happy. But I think in reality, like I think I realized through this that intellectual stimulation is probably a little bit higher on the hierarchy and like being in real estate didn't really scratch that itch, and then I had originally gotten into the space because I was interested in telecom, but now like I was I was pretty far from from, from from that. And you worked on this project alone, right? I did. Um, yeah, that was also a challenge. Uh, I mean, I, I did also go into it like knowing that it'd be like a short-term project. Um, but yeah, if I was ever starting anything full-time, um, I was also after the summer would definitely want to do that with a co-founder. Yeah, that makes sense. And your last realization on the fact that like it turned more into a consulting project than it was something that you could build and scale. Uh, how would you do things differently next time then? I think it's easy to talk to a bunch of people at the beginning um, and then you find a problem and then you just start building. And then once you start building, you stop talking to people. And I think it's really important that like while you're building still, you're talking to people and like different people, not just uh, the one that you know kind of pointed you to the problem in the first place. Um, I think, yeah, just don't build in a void is sort of what I learned there. And I think you were also talking about being a solo founder. You're focused on building the app, but also you're trying to talk to all of these people at once. How was that experience like? That was also just like super exhausting um, as well, and I think kind of just led to uh, you know the the reluctance to to take more calls. But yeah, it's just. If, if you're a solo founder, I think context switching is just 
conversations just have something you need to do all the time, and that's really draining. Like, you know, when you're scheduling calls, you're typically saying like, oh, like any time works for me, and you're, you know, um, you're you're working around their availability. But that ends up to that that leads to like, let's say like, you know, you've got a call, and then you've got 30 minutes, and then you've got another call, and then you've got another 30 minutes, and like, it's just really draining to like. You know, after a call, code for thirty minutes, and then hop in another call and like start coding again. And so, yeah, that that context switching uh, just yeah took a lot out, and is another reason why I think having another founder is really helpful. Yeah, I agree. So, I guess that's a good transition to what you're working on now. Are you able to talk about that a little bit, and also the relationship that you have with your co-founder? Yeah, for sure. So, I guess like you know. We'll be speaking a little bit more about what we were working on this past November a little later or a future episode. Um, but Come right back next time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but right now, I'm working with uh, Siddharth Krishnan, also a senior. We're both taking the current winter quarter off. Um, and we're now working on essentially creating an agent native interface to browse the web. Um, so you people might have seen some like browser-based agents, you know, Adept is building some, Multion, and I know certified by DivGarg, also a former Stanford student, um, is building one where essentially you tell the agent in your browser to do some kind of action, whether that's like book a flight, you know, come up with ingredients for a spaghetti and then order those ingredients from, from Walmart, essentially just like automating what a human would do. Um, but these agents work by parsing in like the HTML of a site um, and then, uh, you know, kind of finding um, a, a button to click, a, a search bar to, to, to type into, um, and then um, executing on that. Uh, and this, we realize that like this approach is just inefficient for a couple of reasons. Um, like number one, if you're parsing in the entire HTML, yes, you can probably do some filtering, like filter out like you know styles that you know aren't relevant. Um, but at the end of the day, you're still parsing in a lot of text that you that is not necessary to your end goal, uh, and which is both um, you know costly. Um, and like increases um, your your inference latency. Uh, secondly, um, it's not as robust. Uh, and then finally, one of the biggest concerns with like anyone deploying LLMs, if you talk to them, is just like the risk of hallucination. And if you have a lot of this text in in, in a page, that's you know, I mean, if you just think about a page and, and a bot wanting to click a single button, like the amount of the ratio of like relevant to irrelevant rate information is just very very low. And, and of course, increases the, the chance of you clicking on, on a wrong button as well. Uh, but meanwhile, like these sites are essentially created in the first place by they're making some kind of like backend API JSON call or probably JSON, and they're getting some response. Um, and then they're kind of like hydrating that with this JavaScript, adding all of the styling. And so we were just wondering, like, could we like just get that relevant information, like just the JSON, and that that's really what we need. And even like when you click a button, that's also just a backend call, except like you're sending the backend some some JSON. So now we're building a crawler that essentially just, like crawls the web, explores sites like like a human might, um, but in the backend like logging all of these network um, calls, and then we're figuring out the structure. Um, of these calls, I'm um, sort of creating a, a sort of DAG architecture out of them, so they can figure out like what sequence of requests you need to make in order to to make a um, given command that, that you want. So, like, let's say you wanted to, you know, again, um, add spaghetti ingredients and, and buy them from from Walmart. We would you would call our API with a the domain like Walmart.com, and then you know your command like buy pasta sauce, and then we'd hopefully return you an, an API sequence like. An array, 
which would be like walmart.com slash API slash search. Uh, and then we tell you what structure you need to send in. And then Walmart API slash like add to cart, which probably has like a product ID, but you would get that from like your, your previous search. And then like walmart.com slash like checkout, which maybe needs like a checkout ID, but you would have that from the previous API as well. That sounds so cool. I need it. <laughs> How did you come to this idea? I think we were just talking with agent developers and realized that, I mean, like all developers, if you, if you talk to anyone, will will say like, you know, we prefer interfacing like over APIs and like APIs are the future. But, um, you know, not all sites offer APIs. Not all sites want to offer APIs, especially like if you look at like LinkedIn, you know, for example, or like the other social media sites because they don't want them like scraping slash stealing their, their content. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we just realized that uh, there's been incentive to reverse engineer these APIs somewhat. Um, singular instances, like uh, there, I remember in my sophomore year, I had a friend working on an app called the OG app. Uh, they reverse engineered like Facebook and Instagram's APIs and then essentially built an app where your feeds were the like combination of the two. And there's also like lots of other instances like that. There's like lots of like LinkedIn scrapers that probably have done the same. But in the age of like agents, um, there's now this like, I think pretty novel need potentially to do this like at scale. And uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of the, the problem that we've been interested in, in tackling. Um, I think a lot of students and listeners, they have a lot of ideas about what they want to do, but often one of the biggest challenges is where are you getting that data from? And it, is it open or is it closed? Like, what are your thoughts on that um, as you approach this problem? So like in terms of te technical challenges, definitely like quite a few. Um, right now, like for example, we're starting with just like sites where your requests and responses are like in a, in a JSON format. Um, if a site uses like GraphQL or they use like Protobuf, that's going to be like another challenge. But you know, we'll, we'll kind of like cross that bridge when, when, when we get there. Uh, and you know, the majority of sites do use JSON. In terms of whether sites are like okay with it, I think from a, from a technical perspective right now, um, we're, exe we're, we're executing all of these requests client-side. So like, at, or at least like all of these agents are like sort of based client-side. Um, if you look at like, again, like Multion, for example, um, or like an Adept, um, they're like Chrome extensions. And so you're executing these requests from your local computer and therefore like your requests are like basically like indistinguishable from, you know, requests that you'd make like from within a browser. And obviously, we're also imposing like rate limiting, so like we, we don't want to be the facilitators of you know you like spamming slash DDoSing um, these end servers as well. I think ultimately, you know, we need to put more thought into this, but I think we need to construct some kind of argument uh, for the content sites where this is like a win-win situation. Yeah. Um, I think like you know Plaid kind of ran into this issue as well, um, where or and also like even Uber in in in, in some sense where. Like the the sites or like the city is like not very happy with like what you're doing, and then you know you have to either construct an, an uh, argument um, where like you know if you're plaid you're like oh like you know people using our API are actually interacting like with their 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 banking systems more they're in, in, you know initiating more transfers or like um, you know in Uber I don't I, I think this was pretty debunked but like they're we're like saving emissions or something mm -hmm. like that. And, you know, I mean, hopefully we're, we also might provide enough value that eventually one day, like, our, our users might advocate for us and, and, and talk to, to these sites and be like, I mean, I know this happened again, like, in, in Plaid and, like, Uber's case, where they're like, oh, like, you know, why doesn't this app work with, or this, like, uh, accounting app work with, uh, you know, Bank of America? Like, come on, Bank of America. <laughs> or, like, come on, at SF. Like, we would love to have Ubers here, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's, like, our, our end goal. Um, but, yeah, I think just constructing that win-win situation is, is definitely important. 
what do you hope to be some of those main use cases and the people who would be using your app as you launch? That's something we've also been <laughs> thinking quite a bit about. Uh, right now, again, we've been kind of like building this in mind with agent developers uh, at, at the forefront. Um, but we're also thinking about how like we can build a um, a robust, you know, hopefully, um, you know, non-agent dependent business. I mean, obviously, like right now, there's sort of like a semi-consensus view among like builders and like VCs that like agents are going to be like a huge thing in the future. But we think that like this could potentially also have applications uh, just in the general like sort of integrations space. We're wondering like, you know, let's say you are building a, a booking site like Calendly and you need to integrate with Google Calendar, Apple Calendar, Microsoft Calendar, whatever other calendar. Like you need to build out each of those integrations individually. We're wondering like whether we could sort of mold uh, some a couple unofficial APIs into some like so, sort of uh, standard structured official API formats. And therefore, like if a new user comes onto your new booking site and they use like this different like calendar.com as their calendar and you don't have an, an integration for that, wondering whether we could like sort of ad hoc create an integration for you so that you aren't losing out on those kind of users cause mm -hmm. just because you haven't built up that integration yet. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I'm planning like a Southeast Asia trip and I'm having the hardest time going across travel websites <laughs> trying to make that happen. Uh, any last word uh, for the listeners? Is there anything that they can help you with? No, I mean, uh, we are hoping to, to launch in like a, a week or two. Our, our, our company, I mean, there's nothing really on our landing page right now, but it's laurellabs, L-O-R-A-L.com. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on the show, Jason. It was wonderful. If you want to follow Jason on his development journey, I'll link all of his information below in this episode's description. In the next episode, Jason and I sit down for an intimate conversation about our experience, applying to YC, getting into YC, and then ultimately deciding not to work together as co-founders. We learned many lessons from this experience, so I hope you'll tune in again for another episode.